This morning we are in Acts chapter 20. If you want to go ahead and turn there, um, I'll just give a couple of notes from last week. Um, we saw Paul in Ephesus. Remember, he's in um, Asia, that he had tried to go into Asia, which at this time is a province in the Roman Empire um, in what is modern day Turkey. He tries to get there, but the Lord says no, sends him to Macedonia. Um, he's very briefly, at the end of his second missionary journey, able to get into Asia. And he says, if the Lord wills, I'll come back to you. And that was the Lord's will. And he went back and he stayed in um, Ephesus for about three years, a little more than three years. And he's there. And then um, things get a little bit out of hand because the uh, in, in the city of Ephesus, they had... Uh, images to the Greek goddess Diana, Diana, get that name eventually, Diana, uh, being made there. It's how the, many of the people made their money. Um, it was a, a massive temple to her there. Um, her name was also Artemis, and so it's like great as Artemis of the Ephesians was their cry, and there was a, a riot. Uh, there was a mob. And, you know, if you've ever been in this situation in a huge group of people and you felt like things were going to go the wrong direction, um, that can be a pretty scary, you know, feeling. You know, I mean, even at a at a football game uh, with a hundred thousand people, things could turn very quickly um, if certain calls in the game are made um, against the home crowd, against the home team. It could get ugly, um, and even more so when people's livelihoods are at stake. People believe that their way of life um, is at stake. And so they go after uh, Paul and uh, the people with him. And so he ends up having to leave there. And that's where we pick up in verse um, 20, and he, I mean chapter 20, and he continues on in his journey. So let's pray and then um, get into chapter 20 here. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love and for your goodness to us. We thank you for your word that is truth. Please speak truth into each one of our lives uh, this morning, we pray that each one uh, would be each one of us would draw closer to you, God, uh, strive to be more in your presence and to be more like your son Jesus. But Lord, we can know we can only do that through your grace, through your love, and through your power. And so we humbly submit ourselves to you this morning and ask that you would teach us by your word and by your spirit, and that you would um, increase our fellowship and love for one another. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. So in chapter 20, it begins, After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed from Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions and had given them encouragement, he came to Greece. And there he spent three months, and when a plot was made against him by the Jews as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. Sopatar the Berean, son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus and Gaius of Derby and Timothy, and the Asians, Tychicus and Tromiphus, and they went ahead and were waiting up for us up at Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. And on the first day of the week, When we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intent to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech 
until midnight. Uh, let's stop there for a moment. And so we get a little bit, you know, of the travels. And if you're a visual um, learner, like I, I can be sometimes, um, it can be helpful to have like a Bible map and, hey, here's Paul's missionary's journeys and, and let's see where we are in Acts 20 and kind of, you know, track where people are and where they're going. That, that sort of helps me. Don't have that for you up on the screen or anything today. So just encourage you to do that if you're, if that sort of thing, um, you know, you like the historical details and, and that sort of thing uh, kind of piques your curiosity. Um, but one of the notes that I wanted to make this morning was just in verse 7 where it says, on the first day of the week when we were gathered together to break bread. Um, and here, you know, we have one of these clues of, of what the early church is doing and, and what their patterns were and how they went about doing things. We have this throughout the New Testament, uh, but it's important because we want to understand that, you know, we here in 2017 in One Hope Church didn't just decide, you know, one day, hey, you know, Sunday would be a good day to meet. Let's do that. Um, and, you know, breaking brother, bread together would be a, a good idea to do together. Let's do that. No, these things are in the scriptures for us that show us um, what was instructed and how the New Testament church operated. Um, and we'll see more things in this passage this morning that tell us that. Um, and so we want to be taking note of those things and try to follow that as, as best we can. Because as we believe that God you know, is a God of order. He made his creation in an orderly way. You know, he made, you know, he made um, our human bodies to function a certain way. He made our planet, you know, to revolve um, at a certain angle and at a certain speed and a certain rotation. And all of that is very precise um, and it's for our good. Um, because, and so he cares about how he has organized the, the world and and yet somehow for so many when we comes to things of you know the church we we can have a tendency to think that it's a you know we'll just do whatever you want to do and whatever you see that you you know however you want to do it's fine well you know it's Jesus's church and he's the head of it and he's going to have an order and a, and a pattern of how he desires things um, to be done that being said as with our whole lives, like he has things for you and I to do too, right? And sometimes we get that right and sometimes we get that wrong and God is still gracious. So understand that. God is, is gracious um, to his whole church, the Big C Church throughout the world. Um, and sometimes we do things you know, better, even our own church. Sometimes we do things the right way and sometimes we do things not the right way. But God's grace is sufficient you know, for us collectively just as it is individually. And so we want to factor that in as well so that we don't become, you know, prideful, you know, about how we strive to, to do things. Uh, we want to be humble and say we strive to, you know, be humble before the Lord and do the things in such a way that would please him as, as he set for us to do. The reason they met together on the first day of the week, because our whole faith revolves around the first day of the week that Jesus rose from the dead on the first day of the week. You know, because remember, all those who started the early church were devout Jewish people who kept the Sabbath. You know, in the seventh day, God rested, you know, from his work. And even the, you know, in the commandments, you know, to remember the Sabbath and to keep it holy. Um, and so there had to be something of tremendous significance for these 
Jewish people to say, okay, we're no longer having Saturday the Sabbath as our primary day to gather, but we've, we're moving it to Sunday. And the only thing big enough to make that shift is the resurrection of Jesus himself. It's the only thing really big enough for, in, to change that cultural way of doing things for thousands, thousands of years. Um, so that's a huge, huge thing. You know, we just read on the first day of the week, and, and we can sometimes lose the, the, the cultural significance of that statement. It's, it's a largely, it's, it's, it's powerful. It's really, really powerful. It, it signifies a culture shift. So they gather to, together to break bread. And, you know, we know, like, in the night that, that Jesus was betrayed and his, you know, really the trial all starts, um, he had a meal with his disciples and he also, you know, after supper, he took the bread and he broke it. And he took the cup and he gave, you know, and both times he gave thanks for it um, and he shared it with them. And so now, and, and again, we're here on a Sunday morning, so we're not like, you know, trying to, we're not legalistic or, or, or so overly dogmatic that say, you know, you, well, you have to have your meeting at night. You know, we, we are trying to stick to the Lord's day. But again, this was a day of, also a day of work. You know, the first day of the week would be a day of work in their in the both in the Jewish culture and in the Roman culture, and a lot of times people weren't able to get out of that either. So, you know, they would come. At, you know, you've got to have the setting in your mind that in, as we move into this, that this is after work. They're going to share a meal together. They're going to take the Lord's supper together. They're going to break that bread together. Um, they're going to remember Jesus. They're going to have music. They're going to have teaching. You know, these are the sort of things that we see. Uh, in the New Testament, in the meetings of the local church, but you know, it's um, when Paul is there, it's a you know, they're probably going to meet longer than they normally would. You know, I think because they're sharing a meal together, and because they're still doing all the all the things in terms of the reading of the scripture and of prayer and of remembering Jesus and fellowship and encouragement, all these things. You know, I don't think they fit all that into fifty minutes. Um, it's just not possible. Uh, but here, this is going to be a really, really long meeting, and, we, and we're not saying from this that all their meetings were, you know, 10, 12 hours long. Um, but, you know, some, somewhere in between, but they probably met together for several hours whenever they would meet in order to accomplish, you know, all of these things and to have their fellowship. And they, so they took the time, you know, for it. But Paul is, um, he's feeling good this day, um, and he's he's preaching for a long time and it's midnight, you know, already. And so some of us longer winded preachers, we love this. We love this whole Acts chapter 20. Let me tell you, we love it. Um, because, you know, it makes us feel a little bit less bad because um, it's not midnight, you know, sort of deal. Uh, but the people, you know, they know that they don't get all the time with, with Paul. This is kind of an unusual thing and they want to maximize you know, this time they're willing to listen as long as Paul's willing to talk, you know, really, uh, which is evident here. But there is a natural human um, struggle after a long day of work and it's midnight. And it says in verse eight, there were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered and a young man named Eutychus sitting at the window sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer and being overcome by sleep. He fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. Man, now that's, that's some serious 
you know, I mean, he picked a bad spot. Eutychus, it was one thing to fall asleep. It's another thing to do it in the third story window, right? Like, you know, and notice this is a pretty impressive structure that's been, you know, built here. They're up on the third floor of this, and they don't, remember, they don't have the modern, they don't have motors like we do. They've got human power and animal power, uh, and they can use pulleys and levers and things like that. But, you know, they don't have an internal combustion engine. This is pretty, you know, amazing, just in that little detail. But he's way up there, and we all know how it's been. I mean, you've been in a place where you, like, especially if you're young, you know, when you were younger, you know, perhaps, and some of you in here are young, but, you know, you're, you know you need to stay awake for something. You know, the professor's given an important lecture, and, you know, maybe you stayed out too late the night before, or whatever it was, or you're talking with your friends, and you didn't get enough sleep. And you know you need to stay awake for this. And you're trying to take the note, and you feel like your head's starting to, you know, dive down. And it's really not that Paul here is being boring. It's just a fact of life that it, sometimes it's a struggle to be awake. And Eutychus kind of, he, he, he succumbs to this in this deep sleep. And again, he picked a really, really bad spot to do that. He should have gotten down and gotten over in a little corner and kind of huddled up. Um, but he falls out the window and it says, he's taken up dead, but Paul went down and bent over him and taking him in his arms and said, do not be alarmed for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak and so departed. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. That's a way of saying they were very comforted. Now one of those double negative deals, but they were very comforted. Uh, and so, you know, this is a meeting that started sometime in the evening, and it just continued on. You know, it looks like about 18 hours here that um, they're together, and Paul is talking and all of this, and God's grace over this young man's, you know, life, that his, you know, mistake wasn't fatal. Um, but it's a powerful scene. It's a powerful scene because you can see Paul, uh, and this is going to be more clear as we move on to his his talk with the... the um, leaders from Ephesus, this is kind of like his last shot with them. And so he wants to make the most of it. And they're willing, they want to make the most of it too, because this is kind of it, you know? And so that's what he wants, what he wants. And so it says in verse um, 13, we'll just read 13 through 16. It says, but going ahead of the ship, we set sail for Assos and intended to taking Paul aboard there. For so, he had so arranged, intending himself to go by land. And when he met us at Asus, we went on board and we went to Mithlina. And sailing from there, we came the following day to Chios. The next day we touched at Samos and the day after to Miletus. And for Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia. For he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. And so you can see that, that Paul has this agenda. He's, he knows he's, he wants to be in Jerusalem, and he wants to be there, you know, if it's at all possible, he wants to get there in time for this you know, yearly celebration because he knows that it's going to be a great opportunity for him to share you know, Jesus with people, not, that are not just from Jerusalem, but that people have gathered there from all over the place. And so it's, a, it's very strategic for him to get there for that event. But, you know, he, he's got to have a lot of planning here because it's not like he can just hop in a plane and fly over there in a few hours. You know, it's, travel in this time, like it has to, if you're going to be at a certain place for a certain event, 
Um, it's got to be pretty well planned, and you got to you, you know you try to leave some room for buffer uh, because you know your your ship might encounter a storm. The winds might be blowing the wrong direction. Um, you know, a road may be blocked. I mean, there could be all sorts of things that could go wrong that would be, you know, delaying. And so he wants to, to make it. So he's, he, he desperately wants to see the people, the elders of the church at Ephesus, because remember he had spent, you know, over three years of his life with them, uh, working with them and, and praying with them and, and teaching them. But he also has his mission at stake as well. And so he's trying to balance these things, and, and that could be a difficult thing to do. And so he says in verse 17, Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, Now they have to travel a distance. Now get that. You know, the distance um, from Ephesus to Miletus wasn't you know, a real short distance. It wasn't like they just had to go walk for an hour. You know, this is a, this is a journey. But he says to them, You yourselves know... How I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of, of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And we're going to take this section by section, just a couple of brief notes in each section. Um, but he says, you know, I had a pattern of life among you. This is how I lived. And it wasn't the easiest life. He says it's with humility. It's with tears. Um, it's with trials that he faced obstacles while he lived among them, you know, during that time. But he also says he didn't want to, he didn't shrink back. He was, you know, he's saying he was bold in declaring everything that he thought would do them good. And so that's his goal. You know, that was, he says, you know, that was my agenda for day one. Now, I want, to be under, I want to understand as we go through this whole passage that Paul isn't making a claim to perfection. He's not saying, hey, every single day I was 100% perfect. I mean, that's impossible for any person, anybody, any situation. It's just not going to happen. But he does say, hey, for the whole, you know my pattern of life among you. You know, the, if you look at the bigger picture, the, those three and a half years, this is how I lived among you in an honorable way. That was my pattern of life. Um, and how I, I, I didn't want to take, hold back from you anything that would do you good. So, and, and, and then he says, I taught you in public and from house to house. Yeah, so you can see he's, he's saying, you know, he's worked hard, you know, among these people. There is no doubt about that. And what's his message? You know, primary, of course, he's, I mean, over three and a half years, I mean, he's teaching them lots of things, especially those who became believers and came to know the Lord. I mean, he's sharing many, many different things with them of the deep truths of God. But central to that is repentance toward God and the faith toward the Lord Jesus Christ, which is, God, I'm sorry I'm a sinner, and I believe that your son, Jesus Christ, died on the cross for my sins and rose from the dead. Like, that's central to his his message, and that's what undergirds all of his, I mean, that's the foundation for all of his message everywhere. You know, even in the practical things of life, underpinning that, the foundation of that is, you know, we, we have to be humble before God and repent of our sins and, you know, remember that Jesus died for us. You know, and that's a huge help. That's a huge help for all, because that's big picture, right? And so we got the big picture right, we got the foundation right, and then that helps us to handle the smaller things, the smaller, you know, the issues that we all have. 
you know, it helps us to handle those things in light of that bigger picture of the cross of Jesus Christ. And so we desperately all need that. I need that in my life all the time because I can lose sight of it, need to be reminded faith in our Lord Jesus Christ is what is central. You know, and, and here we have, even in that phrase, the Lord Jesus Christ, it testifies that we have a Savior and a Savior who is gracious, and it also testifies that we have a King and a King to be obeyed. Um, and it holds both of those things together for us as only Jesus can. Only Jesus can do that. And so he says to them, And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not count account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course or finish the race and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. That's one of the most powerful few verses in all of Scripture. I mean, it's, it's big. We need to take a couple minutes here and, and look at what he's saying. He says he's going to Jerusalem, and all along his journey, he's saying the Holy Spirit is testifying that in Jerusalem there's going to be trouble. Like, that's a guarantee, you know, when the Holy Spirit tells him that, like, it's a guarantee for God. Like, I need you to go there, but I want you to be prepared. He's like, he's being prepared in his mind, in his heart, in his emotions, and everything, that when you go there, that's it's not going to be easy. Tribulation, imprisonment, like, it's, it's waiting for you. One of the amazing things here is that, you know, you, you, you have a contrast. Have a contrast. Think about Jonah who was told, you know, to a people, it was about a people he hated. Now get the difference here. It was about a people he hated. Go and tell them this message of judgment. And Jonah is afraid, well, I know God's so gracious that these people, if they hear this and repent, that God's going to relent of that judgment and give them grace and mercy. Out of his hatred, he doesn't want to go. Paul is, and he's, I mean, and Jonah has this like level of protection over him in that as a prophet of God. And what Paul is being told is, hey, you're going to go there and they're not, you know, there's a lot of them that aren't going to hear you. You're going to be, this is going to be, you're going to be thrown in prison. This is, this is going to be a trial and tribulation for you. But out of his love, he goes. You see the, diff- the contrast in that, between, in that circumstance between what Jonah's attitude and heart was and what Paul's heart and attitude here is. Because remember, you know, in the book of Romans, you know, Paul's made it clear that if, if he could be damned so that his countrymen would be saved, that he would make the trade. That's the depth of his love for his people. That's powerful. Um, and this is where that, that those questions that we have to ask ourselves come up. Because, you know, we all kind of have it like, Yes, God, I'll do what you want me to do if it's what I want to do. All is well, and if it's easy and, you know, it's great, right? That's not hard. I mean, all of us will sign up for that. Every last one of us will sign up for, yes, God, I'll do the easy thing. I'll do the thing that, you know, with the big reward that doesn't cost me very much. Yes. But what if God tells you up front, 
hey, this is really, really going to be difficult. It's going to be really, really hard. Will you do it? That's a, that's a question. And in these questions, there isn't judgment. I'm just asking questions, okay? Because, I, I mean, I have to ask myself these same questions. And I do have to judge my own heart on it. You have to judge your own heart on it, you know. But try not to judge my heart on it too much. I'm going to try not to judge your heart on it. Because um, he says this, I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to herself. You know, some of the translations, I do not, you could just say it even this way, I do not count my life as precious to myself. So here's another question. Do you count your life as precious to yourself? Even back to me, Chet, do you count your life as precious to yourself? Honest answer, yes. I count my life as very precious to myself. That's honest. I'm not saying it's right. I'm just saying it's honest. I count my life as precious to myself. And I count the lives of those close to me as precious to myself as well. And so both of those are going on. And I want to make a distinction and a clarification here. Okay? If Paul in his own flesh, decides, you know what? I'm going to go over to Rome, and I'm going to get into the Colosseum during the middle of the games, and I'm going to walk out onto, that, onto the field, you know, the, 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 in the middle of the arena. I'm going to go out into the middle of the arena. I'm going to silence the crowd, and I'm going to say, all your gods are false, Caesar is not a true king. He's not a true Caesar. There is only one, and his name is Jesus Christ of Nazareth, who died, rose again, and will return. And then he's slaughtered, or beaten, or whatever it is, and he does it. It's, it's just of his own flesh that he does that. He's wrong. He's wrong to do that because he's trying to make his own you know, his own will for his life. Even though it's of a great sacrifice, he's still wrong to do that because God had a plan for his life and, and for all the people that he's supposed to touch and reach and teach and everything else. And he doesn't have the right as a servant of God, even as noble as it may be viewed, to go and usurp that and do something extremely dangerous just because he wants to or because he thinks it's a good idea. So, being, so, so understand this, nobody is saying to take great risks just for the sake of taking great risks so that, you know, you, that you've decided you're going to take, so you can say, hey, I did this to glorify God. That's not what's being asked of us, of any of us. Nobody's asking for you to take your family, and move to one of the most dangerous places on earth just because that's what you decide you want to do as a way to serve God. However, so that's not the question. Let's just take that off the table. However, if God so asks and directs, 
go and do this thing, go and live in this place, go and take your family and move to a place that most people are trying to avoid. Like the people who live there are actually like would do just about anything to get out. Like you think of all the families trying to leave Syria through that civil war. And God calls you to take you and your family and go into it. Like, don't do that because you think that that's noble and heroic, but do do it if God asks you to do it. The problem is that when God asks us to do it, most of us are going to say, but I value my life as precious to myself, and I value the lives of those right around me as precious to me, more precious than being obedient to God. That's the problem. That's the problem. And the reality is we have a problem with doing that in our lives because we could all look back at situations where we think that God didn't get it right. That God didn't do a very good job. I mean, I'm, being, I'm trying to be transparent here about how we often, myself included, think about these things. That's a, it's, a, it's a battle in our minds and in our hearts to think about things rightly and correctly. You know, when I was in middle school, I'll never forget our, our family getting a call in the middle of the night saying my oldest cousin on my mom's side, Joseph, had been, you know, he died in a, in a car accident the night before. And so his story was, his father, my uncle Cullen, you know, right out of you know, Bible college, had moved his, himself and his wife, moved to Brazil to be missionaries there, had all, had all four of their children there. You know, he's still there, serving the Lord. And his oldest son was, you know, loved the Lord, wanted to be a missionary back in Brazil, and he was back in the States. He had gone to college, I think, in the States. And he was back in the States to, to raise some support to be able to go back down. And he had preached at a, a small church in Pennsylvania. He leaves there. The leadership of the church meets and, and decides they'll give him everything else he needs to go back to Brazil. His fundraising is, is done. It's done. He never knew it was done, but it was done. And then not used to driving on an icy road and a single car, accident into the ditch and his life is gone. And so that's hard to deal with. That's hard to deal with because you see somebody who seems like they're doing everything the way God wants in obedient life and then we don't like the outcome of that. And we think to God hey, this guy was going to go back and serve you and help so many people, and now he's not here with us anymore. At minimum, you, I mean, whatever your theology is on that sort of stuff, at minimal, God, you let that happen. You're all-powerful, and you're all-knowing, and you still let that happen. Why'd you let that happen? And we think we could have made a better decision than God made about not intervening or doing something differently in that situation. We think we know better than God in those situations in our, throughout life that we've witnessed. And so that's why it's so hard for us to trust. That's why it's so hard for us to live life with open hands because we're very terrified of the result of that. So we close our fists and try to hold tightly 
to our lives and the lives of those you know, we love most deeply, we try to tight, hold tightly to that. To have some sense of control. But in reality, that's just an illusion. That's just an illusion. You know, and, and, and just to tell us that that's an illusion, how many followers of Jesus, you know, from the United States go to other countries and die as martyrs? Like how many in the last 50 or 100 years? Well, how many followers of Jesus in the last 50 years have died in car accidents? But I don't hear followers of Jesus saying, I ain't going to drive. And I ain't going to let my kids drive. I ain't going to let anybody drive. But I hear lots of followers of Jesus say, we ain't going there. And I'm sure not letting my kids go there. And don't we see how that's just an illusion of control over stuff that we can't actually control? And again, nobody is asking any, I mean, I'm not asking you to drive your car 150 miles an hour without a seatbelt on. Nobody's asking you to do that. And nobody's asking you to go to some dangerous place or to have your kids go to some dangerous place just to go to some dangerous place. But my, my point is just with it is just simply that we can't control the outcome. And you can live a lie, you can live an illusion in your own mind and heart that, says, that wants to believe that you do have control over the outcome and try to hold everything with a tight fist. Or you can admit to God humbly before him and say, I actually don't control here, have control here, and I have to trust you. And I do believe that you're good. And that the eternity that you have, that big picture, you see it all. And I can only see in part. And so I just have to trust that you actually are better at this than I am. That you're better at being God than I am at being God or trying to be God. And that actually makes logical sense because he actually is and we actually aren't. Right? And so then we have to let go, let go of it. And that is incredibly difficult. Incredibly difficult. And it is something that I constantly struggle with. You know, it's like you're, you're young and you're single. We got young single people in here. And you think, Lord, I, you know, I'd like to be married one day. So, like, please let me live that long to know what that's like. And then you get married and you have that. You're like, okay, Lord, please protect this. And, you know, we'd like to have kids one day and know what that's like. And it's just like, and, and more and more even, it's harder. You, you know. And I think Paul would admit it too. I believe it's actually harder to have open hands with the people we love dearest in our lives than it is with our own. With our own. There's another story from my uncle in in Brazil, and he, you know, at this point, he's, you know, he even had, you know, he had grandkids at this point. He's older. His wife's starting to have like dementia, you know, sort of issues. And these men came into their house with guns, 
and they weren't wearing masks, which in that culture means it's over. You're going to die because they're not going to leave witnesses. Um, And he said to them, you can do whatever you want to do to me, but please don't hurt her. She's not, she's not, she has dementia. She ain't going to even remember you tomorrow anyway. Like, don't hurt her. But for me, you can do whatever you want. I'm not going to fight you. I'm not going to try to stop you. Makes sense, right? Because that's like how our minds work when we love that, somebody else that deeply. Now, I think those guys were like moved by that. Tied them both up, left them in the kitchen. They eventually got, you know, he got them free. And they were okay. Just lost some stuff that was old and worn out anyway. Um, but we see in that, I think, it, I think that's one of those things that testifies. It's even harder the, the more you have. And you can't have more than having you know, those precious people in your lives. You know, so it's even more difficult. But he says this, if I only may finish my race and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Like, that's what his life is about. His life is about this mission. You know, he's received a ministry. He's received a mission, really, if you think about it. He's received a mission from Jesus and he wants to fulfill it. And that mission is to let everybody know of the good news of the grace of God. And if you think about his life, and Jesus even said that, said this in in his teachings, you know, somebody who's been forgiven more is going to be more thankful. But if you think about his life, you know, he's zealous for the things of God. He thinks he's doing things right. But he is hurting so many people as he's having, you know, people thrown into prison as he's there at the martyrdom of Stephen, and Stephen is stoned to death, and he's there holding the, the coats in approval. He knows how much God's grace has forgiven him. He knows that he just, all he deserved, all he deserved was to be just struck down by God in his tracks and killed. That's all he deserved. And instead, he got to become a child of God and an inheritor of the things of God. He gets that. He gets that he's nothing apart from Jesus. And so he has his identity in the right place. And again, it goes back to that question of identity, and for so many of us that we struggle with because we have our identity in Jesus, but we also want to have this other identity where we have value outside of that, where we have value based on what we've accomplished and of what we do or our role, or our status, or whatever it is. And we want to have an identity that's separate from our identity in Jesus that validates us as human beings breathing and taking up space and, you know, all of that. But Paul has come to that blessed point in his life where... His identity, his mission, his purpose, everything is wrapped up in the same thing. He doesn't have a divided life. He doesn't have a divided life. And that doesn't ultimately 
depend on the fact that for a lot of his time he spends preaching the gospel. He, I mean, we see as we go on here, he also spent a lot of time working with his hands. But he, that was part of his mission too. They weren't separated. You know, and, and he, they weren't compartmentalized. He wasn't like, oh, I'm over here building tents, and that's not part of the mission. But when I'm over here doing this other stuff, this is part of the mission. You know, for him, no, all of it was the mission. And so he could filter through all of his decisions in life through, is it the mission that Jesus has given me? And that's how he says yes or no to things. Is this part of the mission? Building, making tents was part of the mission, and so he made tents for Jesus. And so if in your life, being an accountant, an accountant is part of the mission, being an accountant for Jesus, you know, make that part of the mission. Don't view that as something separate from your mission, if that's what God's given you to do. Right now, if he's given you to be a student, don't view being a student as separate, as different than part of your mission in Jesus. No, being a good student for Jesus is part of your mission, part of the bigger picture. Whatever it is that you're doing has to be part of the mission. And if it can't be part of the mission, there's probably some sort of shift that has to take place there. Right? But he says, and now behold, verse 25, I know that none of, none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this, this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. And pay careful attention to yourselves and to the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. So just want to stop for a moment. I mean, this is heartfelt because he's not like, hey, I'm going to go away, but I'm going to come back and visit. He's not like, hey, I'm going to be gone for a year, but I'll, I'm going to come and spend another year with you. It's not like that. It's like this, is, this side of eternity, this is it. This is it. So you know that's an emotional time. It's an emotional thing. And so he says, I testify that I'm innocent of the blood of all of you. I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. And that's our, kind of our second big question. The first big question is, you know, am I willing to be obedient to God or do my, I hold my life too dear to myself? That's the first question, right? The second question is, am I innocent of the blood of the people that God has put in my life that he has called me to minister to? Again, we're not talking about profession here. We're talking about mission that Jesus has given you. You know, and, and that's a big question. If you were to die today, how long would your list of names be of people that you still haven't really explained Jesus to that you know you're supposed to? Or if even in many ways more tragic, somebody on that list dies today and you know that you didn't share with them and they're going into eternity. 
That's tough. That's really, really tough. I think we all have people like this. We all have people who, you know, we have like, if we have like two lists, like, yes, I've been faithful to share the Jesus with this person. And then another list, now I haven't really said the things I, I need, that had the conversations I need to have with the people on this list. And so the encouragement is a life of no regret, where whether your life ends suddenly, quickly, today, or you live in an older age and you know you know you can see it coming. Well, doctors say I've got six months, and you can kind of have some of those final conversations or whatever. But we're not guaranteed that, right? I think some of us are kind of counting on that. We can go back and have those conversations then. And so this kind of forces us to have some of those conversations. You know, Jimbo and I were talking a, a few a couple of weeks ago and you know, he was just talking about you know leaving Athens to move to Idaho. He, you know, there was some. It forced him to have some conversations that he had delayed. You know, it, it made him have some of those intentional conversations, uh, which is a blessing. You know, to actually ha- have had those conversations. And so, I think that that's a note for 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 each of us is to think. You know, even right here and now today, to take some time and to make a little bit of a list and say, God, who do I really need to talk to? And, and to be, you know, and to take that challenge and in the grace of God say, God, you know, your, your grace is sufficient for that. And I, and I, you, you know, you want somebody's attention and somebody to hear you. If you humbly come before them and say, listen, I need you to forgive me. You know, I need, you know, they, you feel the relationships, they're going to think the relationships are great, right? And you come and say, listen, I need you to forgive me. They're like, why? And you're like, because. For what I believe to be true in life and eternity, and for me not to have more conversations about you with Jesus is wrong on my part. For me not to at least try to have a conversation with you about how much God loves you. That Jesus would die for, for you as he has me. And to share his love with you, that's, that's wrong for me to do. And I need your forgiveness. Will you forgive me for that? And can we please have a conversation about this? Listen, it's going to be a hard-hearted stinker to hear that and not say, you know, thank you, yes, I'll listen to what you have to say. It's going to be a hard-hearted person not to take that. And what we learn in it when we're sharing the gospel, we're instructed Throughout the scriptures to be humble. We're instructed throughout the scriptures that God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. So that has to inform our method of sharing the gospel. Don't we think that, you know, we share the gospel by being all like bravado and, you know, out there sort of deal and, you know, but... And we, and we see those times. I mean, it, it's obviously bold. I'm not talking about not being bold. We also want to be bold. But in the boldness in the New Testament, sharing the gospel, you don't see arrogance. But a lot of time on our streets, when people are, quote, unquote, preaching the gospel, you see a lot of arrogance with that. And so we need boldness, not arrogance. And there's a huge difference between those two things. You can be bold and humble at the same time. You can't be arrogant and humble at the same time. 
So they strive to be that. Strive to be that. He says he could say that he was the innocent of all the people in, you know, all of those people. Because he did not shrink back from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. And then he encourages them to pay attention because he says, you know, this is the flock, you know, the church in Ephesus. Remember, he's talking to the elders there. He says, the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. That's their responsibility. They care for the church of God, which he obtained with the blood of his own, meaning Jesus. Like, you know, God purchased it with the blood of Jesus. But there's something important in here, even in the leadership of the church. You know, we see here again, you see it throughout the New Testament, throughout the letters written, that, it, you know, Paul's not just having a conversation sitting there with one dude and said, this is all on you. Like, you just don't find that in any church of the New Testament. You'll never find, hey, here, it's, hey, dude, this is on you. It's only you. All this is on you. Like, it's just not there. It's a plurality of leadership throughout. And it's necessity because no matter how great a leader may be, that leader has weaknesses and needs others to have strengths in those areas which are weaknesses for that particular leader. Every leader needs humility, and we have to, you have to have plurality of leadership and living a life in submission to others in order to have some humility. You know, if you get to call every shot, it's hard to be humble. Um, and so that's how we learn humility. And so we need that in our, in our lives, and sometimes that can be difficult. But no matter what the pattern, this is what I would contend with that, is no matter what pattern you have, like what organizational structure you have in the church, you're talking about human beings, it's going to be difficult, right? So it's just going to be better to do it as close to God's pattern that we see in the New Testament as, as we can. You know, you're still going to have problems, but it's going to have different, you know, less problems. I believe. So be careful, because those from in and without are going to come at the church. We'll finish this up. Let's read through this. And now I commend you to the great to God and to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one silver or gold or apparel. You know yourselves. You yourselves know that these hands minister to my necessities and to those who are with me. And all that I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. And they embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. Uh, it's just a powerful scene that we have there as he finishes it off and he just lets them, he reminds them that his motives were pure. You know, he wasn't in it for the money. You know, we don't see, I don't believe we see in places where the church in Ephesus is supporting his ministry. We know that the church in Philippi um, did. Uh, when we read the book of Philippians, we see that. And there were others, you know, at different points in Paul's life, he's, um, you know, Especially in beginning, even in, in Ephesus, he's working a lot, making those tents. Um, but a little bit, you know, later on, then he's able to devote himself fully to, you know, preaching the gospel. Um, and so it's different things at different times of his life. But he's able to make the very clear claim, claim that he's not in it for the money. If he was in it for the money, he'd be do some, doing something else. 
Okay, um, that that wasn't his. He wasn't going through all this suffering, you know, to to gain earthly gain. That wasn't his purpose. That wasn't his point. And he reminds them of the words of Jesus, as they're the leaders in this church, that they need to set the standard in terms of being it being more blessed to give than to receive. And you can imagine just that scene, you know, just imagine that scene there at that port. The ships are ready to go, um, that they kneel down and pray, and that they're all weeping. They embrace him, they kiss him, and they're, very, they're sorrowful because he had said they wouldn't see him again. It wasn't, you know, it's, it's, it's uh, on this side of eternity, this is permanent, this is done. There's not going to be a vacation where I get to come back. There's not going to be visits. There's not going to be anything. You know, this is it. You can't Skype with him. You know, if you write a letter to him, he may get it before it's all said and done. But, you know, no guarantees. Can't text him. Can't call him. Like for these, you know, people here in Ephesus, this is it. This is it, it. And you can imagine that they're, they're rocked by that. Because many of them view that they owe their lives to him. They, they owe their eternities to him. In terms of, he was the one that came and shared the gospel with them. And, you know, without that, they don't, they don't have life. They don't have eternal life. So, of course, um, you know, they're, they're, they're heartbroken. I remember at Pepe's, you know, funeral, I mean, there was people from all different places in Mexico that came for that funeral that, you know, as soon as they heard, they started traveling. And people from all these different places in the mountains, you got these little, you know, indigenous people there by the graveside, like reading, you know, parts of the scriptures in Nahuatl. And that wouldn't have happened if he hadn't put his life on the line for so many years among those people. You know, so it wasn't like surprising that there's just hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people in the street walking behind his casket. Because many of them viewed it as they owed their lives to Pepe and Judy because he had put it out for them so much, so much. You know, and I mean, everybody's got, everybody's got a certain amount of regret, certainly. But there's some people you can look at and, you know, for the, the, the majority of their life, you know, the tenor, like, what's the tenor of it? Like, what does it sound like? Like, yeah, you might have a missed note here and there, but what does the song sound like? And, and you see those sort of lives, you know, that the heroes of our faith that went before us. And, and, and you know, sometimes we, we miss out on that because we, we need to read some more missionary biographies, you know, and, and we need to hear some more of what these folks have done. Uh, and, and you see that we want to be able to say we live that sort of life. A sort of life where we love God more than our, we loved ourselves. A sort of life where we were obedient to whatever it is He asked us to do, small or, or big, easy or hard. 
A life that when it's all said and done, we say, yeah, we put it on the line for you, Jesus. But that's nothing because you went to the cross for us. I mean, that's the kind of life we want to live. And, and what I think for my own life and for the lives of, of all of us is that we can be easily distracted. We can be easily distracted by things that aren't eternal and things that aren't very valuable. And, and we end up making bad trades. You know, and I just don't, you know, I don't want to be sitting there if, if the Lord gives me the 80 I don't want to be, or 90 or whatever it is, I don't want to be sitting there looking back and going, yeah, I made bad trades. You know, I made some bad trades. You want to say, no, we put it on the line for you, Jesus, as our thank you to you. But it's those daily decisions, those daily decisions, some big, some little, But keep after it. Keep after it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you. We're thankful for your grace in our lives. We thank you, Jesus, that you were humble enough to come and put on human flesh to walk among us and to go to the cross. We thank you that so many who have gone before us didn't count their lives as more valuable than ours but they love their neighbors as themselves. And so they went and they shared the gospel. And because of that, somewhere along the way, along throughout history, those in this room got to hear. Got to hear about a man who wasn't just a man, but God in the flesh, who walked on this earth and who served and who turned the other cheek, and who forgave, and in his love went to the cross for us, and we've fallen in love with that Savior and that King. And I pray that that would be our ultimate, we pray God help us, that that would be our ultimate allegiance, that everything else in life, that all else, would not be allowed to take that first place. That you would be our first love, dear Jesus, and that we would not abandon our first love. And so we thank you. As we take the bread and the cup this morning, we thank you, Jesus. You are worthy of our whole lives. We confess that to you. In your name, Jesus, we pray.